Hi, this is Tom Darling, your host for Conversations with Classic Boats, the podcast that brings you ear to ear with the greatest of our classic American watercraft. We have a lot to be thankful for. Thanks to all of you who subscribed and checked in on the website for our Season 1 episodes. It was a great opening season, and we think you will enjoy what we have for you in Season 2. Thanks to our partners, Windcheck and Team One Newport. We love the collaboration. And thanks to all our 2020 season participants, whose memory and insights gave us the raw materials for conversations with classic boats. This season will feature the formula you all seem to like in 2020. Classic boats, unusual histories, nautical characters, personal stories. New parts of the American boating map. Big boats, small boats, and most of all, colorful sailing characters. Just a reminder, subscribe to Conversations with Classic Boats on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. We now have a subscription feature for you Android users right on the website. And look for our new Instagram page, chock full of new and old pictures of classic boats. This episode is in three parts, kind of like my family's favorite pandemic movie in the last nine months, The Godfather, part one, part two, part three. Let me set the scene for part one. In Oyster Bay, Long Island, in the basement of the oldest yacht club in America, Born 1871. There is a vault, and in that vault and on the paneled walls of that club is the history of the oldest, most venerable racing class on the continent, in photo and half model. The club is the Sawanica Corinthian Yacht Club on the Gold Coast of Long Island Sound. The boat is the six meter. You can spell it M-E-T-R-E or M-E-T-E-R. Either seems to be fine. In our three-part series, we will explore the 19th century roots of the boat that led to the adoption of the 12-meter for the America's Cup. Quite a different boat than the high-tech AC beasts we're seeing in Auckland. But in their day, every bit the high-tech machines raced on international waters by amateur crews. Part one, we call the dawn of the six meter. From Sawanica to the second international rule. A story of rules, cups, and breakaway designs. Of Gilded Age family owners and assiduous builders and talented amateur skippers. I'm so happy to have Working with me on this episode, my long-lost cousin, Peter Taylor. We grew up in the same high school, seven years apart. Our respective grandfathers, not sailors. My father was a sailor. His father, not so much. But Peter's sailing life on the north shore of Long Island revolved around Sawanica Corinthian Yacht Club. And his interest is the history of the Sixes. He knows the names of all the sailors and the boats 
at the venerable club in Oyster Bay with the unspellable Native American name, named after the tribe that inhabited its location on Center Island in the town of Oyster Bay. We'll also hear from the former Commodore of Sawanaga, Hugh Jones, proud owner of a fantastic IYRS restoration of a 1924 six-meter Madcap, a boat that our good friend from the last episode on Finisterre and Fidelio, Carol Connor, knew as a child because her grandfather built her. Sixes, all in the family. But first, our sponsors, Windcheck Media with Windcheck Magazine. If you haven't already seen the November-December double issue with our article on classic model yachting and the Dragonflight DF-95, go on their website or find a copy at your local boating retail store. Just an aside, we've started the first intercollegiate radio sailing team at my alma mater, Princeton University. You'll see that described in a future issue. But in the upcoming February issue, read about the SNS twins, Finisterre and Fidelio, the tale of two boats, same design, radically different career paths. Find it all on the Wincheck website, wincheck.com. And Team One Newport, innovating for the serious sailor with those brands you know, Patagonia, Gill, and all that new stuff. Hopefully you started 2021 with your ultimate sailing calendar. Computer screen calendars are cool, but this is the real thing. Visit them on the web. Read those emails featuring right now American magic. I know it's winter, but when we can stop by their Thames Street store in Newport, we'll be dreaming about fair winds and favorable current for 2021. And read about Martha Parker in the February Wind Check in their new section on women in sailing. By part two or three of this series on the sixes, we hope to announce some more sponsors. We're thinking about having a contest. Suggest a sponsor and get a free historical account of your classic boat. If you have an old house, I had one in the 80s and 90s, you probably have some kind of plaque on it indicating its historic value. We'll take the same approach. We'll take you back through your boat's history, and you'll walk away with the timeless memento of your boat's history. Find more about it on the website at conversationswithclassicboats.com or email me at tcd for sale 2 That's TCD numeral 4, S-A-I-L, 2, at gmail.com. And remember, look for our new Instagram we'll be putting up all the classic shots that come from listeners and our own classic photographic archaeology. So here it is. Part one of the dawn of the sixes starts in the 1890s in the swirl of controversy centered on the America's Cup. Of course, the driving force is our old friend, Captain Nat, the Wizard of Bristol. He has his finger in everything, naphtha launches, America's Cup behemoths, Gloriana, his breakthrough designs, all concocted from half models carved by hand and measured on his very own cleverly concocted design rules. Time travel forward to 1907. 
a group of international sailors decide to keep records on their boats, their races, and their rules. They form an association, the International Six Meter Association. I believe the oldest class association, although star sailors may dispute it. Go forward more than a century from there to 2019. The International Six Meter Class, inspired by Matt Brooks, a serial owner and racer of vintage champions like Durade, puts online an ambitious website with the objective of gathering a world of information about the estimated 1,400 sixes built around the world, about 300 here in the U.S. You can find that at 6meter, that's actually 6metre.com, and inquiries at 6meterarchive.org. Check out those addresses. Great winter browsing. The archivist of the class, Gene Whitmore, is at the epicenter of a great data-gathering campaign to identify as much of the information that can be had for the 1,400 known 6 meters built since the 1890s. She's on the site and asks for information on boats and even better photos. A little history of the term 6 meter. My cousin Peter Taylor will go into a little bit more detail. What is a 6 meter? A development class keelboat 33 to 40 feet in length designed to a specific rating rule. The common wisdom is that six meters have come in three ages with some obvious overlap, but driven by a set of commonly accepted design rules. From 1890 to 1920, the first generation, characterized by the Salonica rule look of low and flat, gaff rig and scale like. From 1921 to the early 1930s, the second generation or classic, with designers like Fife, Payne, Crane, and a new man on the scene, Owen Stevens, the young designer who went on to dominate the sixes. And then from the late 1920s to World War II, the third generation of the vintage modern boats pushing the envelope of hull and rig design. The common wisdom is that six meters have come over three ages, with some overlap, but driven by a set of commonly accepted design rules. So in this part one, we're really addressing that first era, back from the 1890s to the wrapping up of World War I. Part two brings you the sound and fury of the sixes in the 20s with its design innovation and furious competitive scene between. And we finish up with part three, the golden age of the sixes, in that second half of the interwar years the 1930s of breakout designs and intense international circuit of six-meter competition. Now, when most of us think about the term meter boat, we think of the 12-meter, because that's what we grew up seeing in the America's Cup. A six-meter was built to the same rule as the 12s, the international rule, long before the first 12 appeared in the late 1920s. What is the international rule, and how did it come into being? I remember in the 1960s as a kid looking at 12 meters and saying, well, they look similar, but they're really all different. How did that come about? Opening up a book we had on 12 meters from the 1940s, 
I looked at what seemed like a pretty simple equation. That boat came from that equation? No way. The question to ask seemed pretty obvious. What is a rating and how did it develop? What's the meaning of all these pages full of equations and who drove the process? Six meters were the guinea pigs for rating rule makers as they evolved from half a century of trying to figure out how to allow boats of different shapes, sizes, and weights race against each other. Let's talk from my own personal experience. What does a rating really mean? I had a blue jay. My neighbor had a snipe. We were forever trying to figure out what was the fair way to race each other. The blue jay was faster in light air, the snipe faster over eight knots. We never figured it out. First to finish won the day. Designers and sailors have spent gazillions of hours trying to do what we couldn't do. From the middle of the 19th century on, the rating rules and how to use them has been the raison d'etre of designers and the bete noire of sailors. Let's look at how the English did it first. In Great Britain, yacht ratings were originally based on tonnage. Formulas took into consideration length and beam, ignored draft. For this reason, very narrow hulls with deep draft were developed, fine in the Solent and raw water. But come the America's Cup, the longer, wider, flatter America did its horizon job, and British designers stood up and took notice. In America, more emphasis in design and rating rule was given to displacement, that is, the effective weight of the boat. In order to reduce weight, American design favored stability of form to the detriment of draft, creating the characteristic broad and shallow hull, the so-called skimming dish. That model could scale from 20 feet right up to the monster 202-foot reliance, the ultimate skimming dish. Meanwhile, let's go back to Oyster Bay, to Sawanaka Yacht Club. In 1883, it had been the pioneer of the so-called linear rating for smaller boats. The boats that we see on the wall at that club reflect their innovation. One wall has flat scow-like craft, the other bowsprit elongated catboat-looking craft. They were Sawanica roll boats. They were American native designs. From these local boats, the mid-30-foot design category was rapidly evolving and forming the base for the dawn and the expansion of the six-meter, the first amateur international racing development class. Several Native American boat designs proceeded and fed into this concept of the six-meter. Again, on Sawanica's library walls, you can read this story, and it spans America and Europe during the Belle Epoque, the gay 90s. The mid-30s foot designs fell into the two categories that we already described. First, scows. A photo in the International Six Archive show, and several photos that we've included in our section, shows the French Six Atout channeling the scow approach. A gaff rigger, snub flat nose reverse shear craft, not unlike American scow designs from the Jersey Shore or the Inland Lakes. And second, 
the good old American sandbagger. In another direction, in the later part of the 1800s, we saw turbocharged catboats with big bowsprits. They carried extra crew with a roll of moving weight back and forth across the cockpit as leaving breathing ballast, trying to stay out of the way of the boat driver who fought wicked weather hell. In the photo section of this site, and in the excellent website directory of the International Six Meter Class, take a look at the pictures of these early ancestors. This is what they look like pre-World War I. The American design style was optimized for the shallow and rough waters that characterized America. Look at the boats. Long overhangs, short keels, moderate rigs. Those are the characteristics of the first generation sixes. Courtesy of the Musée National de la Marine, we can see what the earliest sixes look like in Europe. Atui was a 1907 design of Francois Arbault of Paris. Right from the start of the international class in 1907, two six-meter classes developed in France. One in Le Havre, the other near Bordeaux. Arbault already had two designs to his credit by 1907, and designed another nine by the time World War I engulfed France. The picture from the class directory shows a boat resembling a Harrishoff 15 crossed with a Jersey Shore scow with a Gunter rig. Meanwhile, the international rule was being blended to the British model. The designer optimized the design variables to arrive at a single number. Then that number assigned a design to its given class. This formula calculated a displacement measurement and put that mathematical construct into, for instance, the formula for the six meter. Six meter, the equation, defined the class to which a yacht belonged based on that number. In 1907, this approach was defined as the international rule. Out of the international rule, have come the meter classes, 23, 19, 15, 12, 10, 8, 7, 6, and 5. Today we really only know 12s, <clears throat> along with 8 and 6 meter boats. So 6s up to 1920 were really an evolutionary hybrid. Like dinosaurs were to mammals, they were the ancestors of the mature 20th century 6 meter the class that saw hundreds of boats built in the interwar years and sparked the boom in international competition for the series of trophies that graced the wall of Salonika. The Salonika Cup for match racing, the British American Cup for team racing, and a slew of other trophies put up from Bermuda to Scandinavia. Ironically, it was this Native American, not the international rating approach, that Captain Nat Harrishoff embraced. As usual, Captain Nat had to have the last word. It was that Sawanica formula from way back that Nat adapted and made into his own term of rating in 1903. The formula rating minus in parentheses length times VSA, that's sail area, on parentheses, divided by in parentheses percentage VD. 
he put in the factor dear to Americans of displacement. No longer weighted, but calculated and correctly used as the denominator. Thus, the higher the displacement, the lower the rating of the yacht, and the greater the handicap. For the first half of the 20th century, the Harrisoff Alternative, defined as the universal rule, stood in opposition to the international rule. So think about that the next time you complain about a PHRF rating with that simple one number. Decide who you have to blame. The Wizard of Bristol with his funky Sawanika Kum universal rule? Or the naval architecture gnomes who derived the international rule for keelboat one designs? Postscript. The universal rule and the international rule did actually not get together until 1970. The result was the IOR. But again, no matter to the sixth sailor, he or she was an international rule user from inception. These first generation sixes look nothing like the long overhang sleek designs in the half model collection in the Sawanaga Yacht Club's bar. It is one of the most breathtaking assemblages of models I have ever seen, by the way. These 19th century style sixes were included in the initial Olympics, along with their bigger cousins. For the sixes, this was 1908. Let's take a lo closer look at these first generation sixes, largely European designs. Let's look and talk about the first gold medal winner in the six meter class, the British boat designed by E.W. Laws. Laws designed Dormy for the 1908 Olympics held at Ride Pier on the Isle of Wight on Britain's south coast. An international field competed with five boats from four countries doing battle. After a three race series, the owner of Dormy, Thomas McKeegan, received the gold medal and a Sevres donated by the French president. Pretty nice. Builder and skipper Gilbert Laws was in six meter heaven. There's no one I could find to talk about Dormy, it's D-O-R-M-Y, in the U.S. Please look at the pictures and the drawings in the photos section of this episode after you listen, and you can fill in the history. See Dormy's line drawings. Dormy, the first Olympic gold. In the archives is a complete set of line drawings for Dormy. They're dated 1896. Low freeboard. Short ends, low aspect rate. Look at the photo section. The picture tells all the story. The Brits had been ahead in the sixes from the very start. At the same time, the American designers were really not thinking small. They were thinking America's Cup. The commodore of the Swanica Corinthian Yacht Club in the mid-1890s counted vigilant the Harrisoff design as his flagship boat. Emerging designers like Payne, Crane, and later Burgess saw the market in the big boats. The AC had the stage. They were the huge, glamorous racing machines that captured the contemporary yachting imaginations and the yachting press. But, meanwhile, the sailing world was changing. What we saw was the rise of the Corinthian sailor, 
the owner-skipper. How about these sailors who are driving these newly designed boats floating about in Oyster Bay, joining Long Island Sound, at the Sawanica Corinthia Yacht Club? The photos on the walls of that club speak to the new generation of sailors who made the dawn of the sixes happen. In the 1890s, there was a surge of interest in the Northeast in Corinthian yachting. What exactly was the meaning of Corinthian? Until the last two decades of the 19th century, yachts had been owned by crowned heads of state and members of the royal family, supplemented by the Gilded Age industrial and financial magnates. One Lord Cardigan, a member of the Royal Yacht Squadron, when offered the helm by his captain of the yacht Dryad, replied dryly that he never, quote, took anything between meals, thank you. This was Downton Abbey gone sailing. Peter Taylor tells the story. The new Corinthian owner Skipper was a sailing enthusiast. For him, his boat was a sports car to drive himself, not a recreational vessel driven by a professional crew. New Corinthian owner Skippers came to sailing with a passion for the sport, forming clubs like Sawanica. They were only too happy to take the helm and were often unhappy to allow professional crews on their boats, though maybe one or two. Designers became aware of the new trend. This created demand for yachts that could be handled not only with a reduced crew, but also by enthusiasts who were not the professional seafarers, who had until then monopolized the actual sailing of yachts. The sailing boom of the 1890s stretched from Indian canoes and Eskimo kayaks at the Canoe Club in London to the boats commissioned by Edwardian gentlemen who were to found the first clubs reserved exclusively for Corinthians. No matter the driver, you needed the fastest boat. To make a boat compete within the Corinthian world, you needed a designer. In America, for six meter in the early 20th century, that meant a dapper, mustachioed gentleman named Clinton Crane. Yes, Peter, you're right. Crane did mark the rise of the gentleman designer. Following in the wake of the fully integrated boat factory of Harrisoff, these professionals were largely self-taught naval architects who took the helm as well for their well-heeled owners who paid the bills for a rotating stable of exotic racing yachts of their design. On the walls of Sawanica, up on the second floor in their library, is a stunning half-model of a second-generation six, probably a crane design. That was the look of the second-generation six. We'll talk about that in part two. But the six was well-established as the weapon of choice for the American Corinthian yachtsman. We all know SNS, Sparkman and Stevens, talked about it in the last episode with Finisterre and Fidelio. Drake Sparkman wrote one of the most comprehensive histories of the first years first 15 years of the six-meter class following World War I. I'll be drawing liberally from his account. And of course, his younger cerebral design partner was no less than Olin Stevens. My memory of Olin Stevens is being in his presence on a 12-meter off Nantucket when he was almost 100 years old. Awesome, the junior sailor said, who were with us on the ride. It was Northern Light, I think. They had no idea who he was, 
but they were so impressed with his age. But who knows the name of the gentleman designer, born in the 1870s, when Harrisoff was learning the ropes with his brothers in Bristol, Rhode Island, the designer that encouraged and brought along young Owen Stevens. Who knows Clinton Crane? He had a somewhat unusual career. More Stanford White in the Gilded Age than Captain Nat in Bristol, Rhode Island. Born in Oyster Bay, he was a Harvard engineering graduate, class of 1894, 20 years after NGH graduated from MIT. From there, he went to the University of Glasgow, where he was considered something of an eccentric expert on propellers and the new gasoline engines being tested for the marine world. Beginning as an amateur naval architect, he was designing for himself and his friends' relatives. In 1899, his late 20s, he took an assignment from the St. Regis Yacht Club in upstate New York to design a class of wooden sloops for the light winds of the northern New York Adirondack Lakes. Perhaps the first one-designed fleet in America developed for these so-called items, Latin for one. These unique 32-foot gaff riggers continued to race, some even skippered by descendants of the original owners. The items are featured in every classic boat photography album. I just saw them again in the recent Michael Kahn mini coffee table book, Sailing. Admire those sepia prints. In 1896, fresh back from Scotland, Crane had designed his first international rule design for the Swanica Cup. This cup is represented by a magnificent silver urn behind glass in the bar of the Swanica Corinthian Yacht Club. It purports to be the first active yachting trophy originating in America, at the time for match racing. Crane's first, quote, half-rider design in 1896 for the Cup lost. But he dedicated a large chunk of his designing lifetime to the evolving boats that raced annually for this enormous piece of hardware, as well as the other events that developed between six-meter sailors in America and their European rivals. In 1900, he then established a formal yacht design firm that he operated for 12 years before going back to run the family mining business full-time. He came out of designer's retirement in the 1920s to design for his friends, six, eight, even a 12-meter, some one designs, and a whole group of personal vessels, launches and such. He bounced back and forth from family company to the design board until the Second World War. Clinton Crane had the early iconic designs for that second generation of sixes in the 1920s. Akaba, renamed Lucy by Briggs Cunningham. And in 1931, his masterpiece, Lucy II, campaigned by Cunningham and still winning classic races today under owner Matt Brooks. Crane's iconic 12-meter Gleam was designed for his own personal use and built in 1937. Gleam was loaned to many a training 12-skipper, Cunningham, Harold Vanderbilt, Stevens. 
Perhaps it was fitting that he passed in 1958, the summer of the 12th, the era of the modern 12-meter coming back for use in the America's Cup. And as we'll hear in our next episode, part two, Crane was a designer of the iconic six meters, but he was being challenged by his young friend and protege, the youngster Owen Stevens. The dapper designer in suit, hat, and mustache, Clinton Crane epitomized the traditional old world American designer. Owen was the new man on the block, the new kid on the block. And there was competition nipping at his heels from the likes of Gardner, Payne, Hoyt, Burgess, then Looters, and finally SNS nipping at his heels. On my bookcase is a model of a typical crane design in the form of a sailing model. In the photos section, compare some of the Swanica Library models and my model. Yes, the Americans had the cup, the America's Cup. But when the sixes, the British were coming. The British were coming when it came to sixes. Witness the bigger problem for Crane and his designers. And as far as we will see in part two, Six's competition was the making of another head-to-head national competition. One that rivaled the America's Cup and commanded as much of the media attention for sailing in the 1920s into the 1930s. We'll be back in a few weeks. We're going to do these episodes on a more frequent cycle, so keep an eye out. Thanks to Hugh Jones and Peter Taylor for their input, and to the International Six Meter Class for a fascinating website. Thanks for listening to Dawn of the Sixes, and tune in for Part 2, The Day of the Sixes. Check out the photo section in this website, conversationswithclassicboats.com. We're trying to put more visuals in the work. And of course, subscribe, if you have not, via Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. So listen and give us a review. Five stars only, please. (laughs) And stay well, fair sailing, and hear us next time for part two on the story of the sixes. All on the podcast that has you talking to boats. Conversations with Classic Boats. Thanks to all our participants and our loyal listeners. The producer of this episode is Ned Darling, working from Peacham, Vermont. Hear us next time. And we'll roll the old chariot along. We'll roll the old chariot along. We'll roll the old chariot along. And we'll all hang on behind. And a drop of Nelson's blood wouldn't do us any harm. A drop of Nelson's blood wouldn't do us any harm. A drop of Nelson's blood wouldn't do us any harm. And we'll all hang.